0: They tell them, oh, just
1: look at your glucose at two hours after a meal. And as long as it's under 140, you're fine. That is such a lie. It's not just misinformation, it's an outright lie because people are not fine when their glucose goes that high.
0: Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance Today I have doctor Rena Reena-Marie Lascalzo, the founder of the Institute of Nutritional Endocrinology. She's passionately committed to transforming our current broken disease-focused system into a true healthcare system where every practitioner is skilled at finding the root cause of health challenges and uses the wisdom of nature combined with modern scientific research to restore balance. I thought that was so beautifully written. I did not want to skip over that. (laughs) Dr. Rita Marie is a licensed doctor of chiropractic with certifications in acupuncture, nutrition, herbal medicine, and heart mass specializing in digestion, thyroid, adrenal, and insulin imbalances. She's also a master at using palate-pleasing whole fresh food as medicine and is the best Selling author, speaker, and internationally recognized nutrition and functional health authority with thirty years of clinical experience. Her podcast, Reinvent Healthcare, provides health and wellness practitioners around the globe to be part of the movement to provide root cause care to people in need. Rose. I'm so excited to have you talk about blood sugar and endocrinology and metabolic dysfunction today. Thank awesome. you so much for coming.
1: I'm excited to be here. My favorite topics to talk about, and we could go on for days if we wanted to. Cool.
0: Well, I'd love to hear where your story fit into this because that is often how we start to decide what we're really into. Maybe it's in practice. Maybe there's a personal piece of the story, but you started in chiropractic and then added acupuncture. Maybe it was reverse order, whatever, right? So tell me how you landed in really specializing in endocrinology, which is a real necessary area.
1: A real necessary area. Yeah. Actually, I started with the interest in nutrition, decided chiropractic was going to be the avenue for getting in front of people to become primary care. And then I added the acupuncture and herbal medicine and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it was the other way around. But I started I mean, my official first license was actually in chiropractic. And then I got certified in nutrition, got my master's probably two months later. So it was very close proximity because I studied the both at the same time. How did I get into this? So I was sick. It was my I was in my twenties. I went from doctor to doctor to try to figure out why I had brain fog all the time, why I needed ten cups of coffee. Not I didn't like coffee, but I scrapped that. But ten cups of tea, black tea or Pepsi, to keep me going. And I had sinus issues and headaches, and I had all these health issues. And I'm in my 20s, and nobody's able to help. They're like, oh, just take this, take that, take that. And I was on a whole bunch of medications, tried a whole lot of stuff, and nobody could help. And I don't even know how I got, I figured, well, I, hypoglycemia was one of those things. I had no idea then that it was an endocrine disorder, but. Yeah, I was looking and looking and looking. And one day in the gastroenterologist's office, I said, well, could it be my diet? Because it's pretty bad. And they went, oh, no, no, diet doesn't have anything to do with health. So I said, yeah, right. And I went out to prove him wrong because I'm a rebel at the heart. And I went out and I just started researching. Unfortunately, not in today's day and age. So there were no was no internet and summits and podcasts that I could review on. I had to go to the library and the bookstores and figure it out. And long story short, I figured out that, you know, everything had this underpinning of toxicity and hormonal imbalance. And so I was able to change my diet, change my lifestyle, start to meditate, learned all these different techniques and turned my health completely 100% around within several months. Were you already
0: um, in college at that
1: time? And did that change? I'd already graduated college. I had a master's. No, I didn't have my master's yet or did I? Yeah, I did. I had a master's degree in computer science at that point. Mm -hmm. I was working for a computer company. Yeah, I was long graduated from not long, but, you know, like six years out of college. And I decided that it was I'm a computer nerd, right? I love to solve problems. And I said, I was able to solve this for myself because of my diagnostic brain. Well, what about the average person out there who's sitting there with brain fog and fatigue and all these other symptoms and doesn't have a clue where to start? So that's when I decided to leave my computer job and go back to school and got my chiropractic and my acupuncture and my nutrition Mm -hmm. degrees. And, you know, that's where it is. And and basically, it combined all those different modalities. Naturopathic was not licensed in very many states at that Mm -hmm. point, but it wasn't where I lived. So or I would have gone there, maybe because I had a husband and (laughs) needed to stay where he had a job. So yeah, so that's where it started. And as I went through and started working with people, I started to see there were patterns, right? People, a lot of people had digestive issues, most people were fatigued and exhausted. And you know, there were thyroid imbalances and all. But the thing that kept popping up was this glucose insulin imbalance, right? And that was before all the great research there is today, really linking just about every disease that known to mankind to insulin and glucose dysregulation. And so I just started like, I wonder if we test these people's glucoses after they eat. You know, back in the day, you know, very many glucose meters, you had to go to the medical supply store to get one. And I started having people test and I started to see crazy patterns and really got interested in that and started researching it. And. And that's one of the ways I got into it. But all the hormones always stood out to me. Like, what is the imbalance? Because I think that hormonal imbalances, like endocrinology, is not one of the subsystems of the body, like gastroenterology and whatnot. It's the controller, right? Every single function in the human body is controlled by hormones. Everything, everything. And so I started looking at that as being, we've got to get this under control. And I look at insulin as being queen bee hormone. She's the one that controls everything.
0: Well, let's talk about insulin. But before we do, why don't we talk about, in terms of hormones being the master controller, let's talk about endocrine organs in general in that entire system and pull that together. Because I do think it's kind of an area where you hear pieces of it, Everyone is not an expert on endocrinology, but we're so dang affected by it. So let's draw the lines between the glands and organs as part of the endocrine system.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there are endocrine organs, right? You've got the thyroid glands, you've got the thymus, you've got the adrenals, you've got the reproductive, but that's not the only place where hormones are secreted. Hormones are secreted by the heart, the lungs, the kidneys, right? All of these other places that are not considered hormonal or glandular structures, the gut, the gut makes more hormones than any other part of the body. Yet it's not usually considered when we talk about the endocrine system. But it's a huge part of it, obviously, because it controls so much. So that's where, you know, we've got all those glands, but we also have tissues in the body that have endocrine secreting. And of course, every cell in the body has endocrine receptors. So it's a universal Mm -hmm.
0: And I feel like it's hard to pick a topic sometimes when we're talking about the endocrine system because they're very important every single piece of it. So I know you brought up the word metabolic dysfunction before we hit record. And it's funny because I just got done talking to a cardiologist and he brought up metabolic syndrome and this is one of those trash can, maybe not, it's kind of one of those everything is broken syndromes or dysfunctions or conditions and so maybe we can talk about diagnostically how do we identify metabolic dysfunction or how do we look at symptoms of that and maybe that's where we start is what does metabolic dysfunction and or endocrine dysfunction look like to a person because the tricky part is is our symptoms are going to be there long before the labs change also so how does it look like in symptoms? And then how do we start to look at that with lab data?
1: Absolutely. So it depends. You mentioned two terms, and I want to make sure people are really clear. Metabolic dysfunction versus metabolic syndrome, mm-hmm. right? So metabolic syndrome has a specific diagnostic criteria, which involves lipid abnormalities, hypertension, and glucose to insulin dysregulation. So elevated insulin, elevated glucose, Fasting glucose is not normal. That's in the medical model. The truth of the matter is metabolic dysfunction occurs long before we can make a diagnosis of metabolic syndrome. With metabolic syndrome, we're expecting, oh, the fasting glucose is above 100 and you know the insulin might be in another range and A1C might be in a certain range. And with metabolic dysfunction, we're seeing changes metabolically that can be measured on labs if you know what you're doing and long before, like decades before somebody's told, oh, you have insulin resistance or, oh, you have diabetes long before that. And so what we want is that people become aware that these symptoms, and we could talk about some of the symptoms, can be a sign of metabolic dysfunction. And if you don't shift, if you don't make changes, you're going to be heading down that path, not just to diabetes and insulin resistance, because even if it never turns into insulin resistance or diabetes, there's the dysfunction that happens on the cardiovascular level in the endothelial linings of the cardiovascular system, in the blood pressure, in the lipids. And all of that stuff happens long before there's ever even a hint of a diagnosis of diabetes or insulin resistance, unless you're aware of and savvy about some of the tests you can do and some of them you can do at home.
0: All right. Well, let's start there. So, you said I've got a couple of different subsections. So, labs that change decades before insulin resistance or diabetes would ever be diagnosed, and then symptoms as well.
1: Yeah. So, one lab that changes long before that most doctors won't measure unless you're already diabetic is insulin. Mm -hmm. We can see elevations in insulin literally decades before the blood sugar goes out of control because the body's just trying really hard to maintain things in a healthy level but the elevations of insulin are dangerous in and of themselves, right? They affect the blood vessel linings. They affect the blood pressure. Those are things that need to be addressed. But the other test that, again, most doctors won't tell you about is postprandial glucose, right? And when they do tell people the test postprandial and postprandial meaning after eating glucose, they usually tell it to diabetics or people who are already diagnosed and they tell them, oh, just look at your glucose at two hours after a meal. And as long as it's under 140, you're fine. That is such a lie. I mean, it's not just misinformation. It's an outright lie because people are not fine when their glucose goes that high. They're having all kinds of metabolic changes, changes to the retina, changes to the kidney, changes to the peripheral nerves. So we need to teach people how to test your own glucose. And I've been having people do this for long, long time and getting the little meters. Now we have these cool things called CGMs, continuous glucose meters, and they're more and more available to the general public. And you can eat a meal and look at the thing and go, whoops, (laughs) my sugar went up way too high. Mm -hmm. So the biggest problem with the testing is that all the tests are not done properly, or not recommended. But the other thing is the measurements The measurement ranges are like they're for people who already have the disease. Hmm. I personally don't want to find out that I'm on a path to diabetes, like right when I get it. No way, right? I want to know, oh, you're heading that way. You're heading that way. When you go back to symptoms, the symptoms are things that almost everybody is experiencing on a day to day basis, right? That fatigue, hard to get up in the morning. Second wind late at night, falling asleep at your desk at four in the afternoon. People think that's normal, right? I get that normal slump in the middle of the afternoon. That's not normal, right? Finishing a meal and then needing something sweet, right? Brain fog, all of these things that most people think are normal everyday symptoms and I'm fine. Everybody else has this, not. And those are all early signs of insulin resistance, metabolic dysfunction.
0: All right, cool. So you're right. So many people have those things, even though they were very specific. And so I love that we can be checking at home. This is how I approached. I failed my first glucose tolerance test with my, one of my babies. They made me do the follow-ups, which I passed, but what a miserable sentence for my body to have to go through that test. So instead, you know, I got a glucose monitor. I think it was $30. I don't know how much they are. Sometimes there's fancier ones and less fancy ones, right? Right. Um. So we're talking about postprandial measuring after meals. Anyone can do this. Anyone can go buy the machine. The strips cost the money. You gotta calibrate the strips to the machine. Just walking you through, like you could really do this. And that is the most recognized number for 140 less than 140 milligrams per deciliter post two hours post meal. What are the functional ranges for more optimal levels two hours post meal?
1: Two hours post meal, it should be the same as it is before the meal. Mm. It should be 85.
0: So what about fasting? Do you think it should also be about the same? Fasting should be
1: around 85. You know, it could be in the 70s. It
0: could be lower if somebody's following a low glycemic diet
1: and they're trying to get into ketosis. Then you see it in the 60s and 70s and that's fine, but it shouldn't get out of the mid 80. It shouldn't get beyond 85 to 89. Mm-hmm. It just shouldn't get out of the 80s. There's studies that show that once we hit in the 90s, there's four times the risk of cardiovascular disease. Yet people are being tested all the time and, oh, your glucose, fasting glucose is 93, it's fine, 98, it's fine. But once it hits that magic 100, even if you're at 98 for years before, it hits 100, now you're insulin resistant. That's the fallacy in medicine of diagnoses, right? You're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you're dead, right? Or you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you're very sick in the hospital. And we're looking at gradients, right, from a functional perspective we want to know the gradients where are you heading and so what most doctors don't do there are some that do is track people over time what's happening to these numbers oh you're still in the normal range but huh you keep getting a little higher a little higher a little higher do we want to wait until you're sick or do we want to address that and find out what's causing that before you get sick that's the medicine of the future
0: So I want to talk about everything that we can do with this. And I want to talk a little bit about hypoglycemia. But before we do, I want to go back to the other marker that you said that is usually not drawn. This is something you'd ask your provider for, which is insulin. But then there's the normal range, which we're basing. Typically, those ranges are adjusted like every handful of months by the current population, which is... Not good. These numbers keep getting worse and worse the longer you've been in practice, right? So what is, what do you think the range or the number or the threshold for appropriate insulin should be?
1: It should be ideally between two and five, no higher than five fasting. And then ideally it's between two and three. And there's numerous studies that show this for ideal health, two to three, two to five. You know, I give people a little grace and a little leeway. But the range that the lab says is okay is up to like 19 and sometimes even 25.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You're very sick if your insulin is up there because the insulin is damaging your blood vessels. The insulin is damaging, you know, keeping your blood sugar high. It's causing the cortisol to go. It's all these other things that the insulin it damages thyroid receptors, which most people don't realize that connection.
0: Mm-hmm. Totally. Okay, let's talk about what people do with it. Let's say- that because we can talk about diet, but we can talk about much more than diet and other things in lifestyle. And I actually want to talk about things before we get into like all the things we can do. Let's just abstractly about what affects blood sugar besides diet. Is there when you're monitoring trends, do you see anything with menstrual cycles? Certainly exercise, but what are some of the other things that happen in life that affect blood sugar? Stress is a biggie.
1: Stress is one of the biggest ones. And guess what? Most people are stressed 24 seven, right? We have this perpetual tiger chasing us Mm -hmm. that doesn't let up. And that causes the insulin to go up, the glucose to go up, but it causes the cortisol to go up. And cortisol mobilizes sugar from stores. That's what it does because you're supposed to be running away from that tiger right and when there's no real tiger there then you have all this sugar that's mobilized into your blood that causes increased insulin and then that causes insulin resistance so stress is a biggie sleep sleep is huge they've done studies where they've taken people who were quote-unquote normal and deprived them of sleep for a couple of days in a row and then gone back and look and now they're pre-diabetic
0: yeah I talked about that study on another podcast. I don't know if it took like a week or two weeks. We talk about it in, in the episode, if, if someone's listening, because it will have come out before this one. It's the circadian rhythm one with Julian Greaves and we cite that one, but it's alarming. Yeah. You know, it's just alarming never and it could be a just weeks. a
1: one night. It could be yeah. just two nights. Now, depending on how long you're going without sleep, it'll take less or more time to return to normal. But yeah, these some of the studies are just a couple of days, a couple of days. Certainly the longer ones are going to have more persistent insulin resistance.
0: Mm -hmm. What
1: else? So here's the thing, timing of meals, right? Right now, things are like intermittent fasting is the rage and are looking at getting into ketosis and all this. I've been talking about this for like, I don't know, 15 years. Like you need space between your meals, minimum four to six hours between your meals. Overnight, minimum 12 hours, Right? Let the body go down to baseline to allow the levels of insulin to go back down to normal. Otherwise, you're in this mode where insulin is up all the time. Insulin is a fat storage hormone and it puts the brakes on fat burning. So, there are so many people who are doing the 1,200 calorie a day diets and saying, Why can't I lose weight? Why can't I lose weight? Well, it's the balance, it's the frequency of eating, it's what they're eating, it's the lack of sleep and the stress and the other things that create this problem with elevated insulin all day long. And the old school stuff where they'd say, oh, grazing is the best thing. Eat four to six meals a day. That way you can keep your blood sugar steady. Yeah, you keep your blood sugar steady, you keep your insulin elevated, and you turn off fat burning. Mm -hmm. Nobody really likes... When fat burning gets turned off, unless you're super skinny and high metabolic rate and you need that. Mm-hmm.
0: I have questions about that. And I'm gonna save them for any caveats around that when we get into hypoglycemia and other things. But before we do, things that affecting blood sugar besides diet, we have stress because stress increases cortisol, mobilizes sugar from stores. So on the same note, drinking coffee all day long could do that, right? Yeah. 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 Um, absolutely. I mean, and else? people
1: are doing that, right? They because they're so tired. Mm -hmm. right? Because of this metabolic
0: dysfunction, they're exhausted and they're just trying to stay awake. Mm -hmm. Totally. Totally. Anything to say about alcohol and then also like those special times of life, like pregnancy, blood sugar will vary a bit as well. So I want to talk about those markers.
1: Yeah. So alcohol, I don't have a popular opinion about alcohol and I know a lot of people are, oh, it's organic wine. It's just, and there are studies that show some benefits to small amounts of alcohol, wine in particular, because of the resveratrol and the other antioxidants, but It's damaging the lining of your digestive tract, which means that you don't get to absorb your nutrients as well. It damages liver cells. It damages brain cells, right? I'm a get rid of the alcohol. You want to have a sip of champagne at your kid's wedding? Go for it, but not on a regular basis. I am not a fan of drinking alcohol on a daily basis. People are using it to relax. But what about relaxation techniques that are not double-edged swords, right? That's where I think we need to look at, right? Yeah, there's some positive benefits to alcohol. but There's a lot of negative. Meditation doesn't have any negative downsides, right? Relaxation, breathing, yoga, things like that, that get you out of that stress state in a much more effective way. Plus, it's all those empty calories. Plus, alcohol contributes to insulin resistance and in
0: fatty liver. Yeah, I don't see any positive things about it hmm. Well, how about markers or blood sugar ranges in pregnancy? How do these change? Because they do, right?
1: Well, they do. Yeah, a lot of things change in pregnancy, mm-hmm. right? If you have a subclinical thyroid problem, it becomes a clinical thyroid problem in pregnancy, right? Yeah. And so there's a lot the body's trying to grow a baby, we need more calories, obviously, to grow a baby, but we don't need more sugar. We don't need more starches. We don't need more things that are elevating insulin. So I don't know the exact ranges. I haven't really, you know, if I'm going to look them up, I look them up, right? Because mm-hmm. um, I'm not working with a lot of women in the, in the pregnancy time. But we see that women develop what's called a gestational diabetes. So they're having problems with more problems with insulin resistance. Yeah, they probably had some problems before. But the conventional medical approach to diagnosing it fails miserably big time. Right. So we didn't catch it that I have problems with insulin regulation. I have some genetic factors. I have, you know, 25 years of eating Cheetos and, and M&Ms and ice cream, like, and nothing else and no veggies. Right. So I'm going to have much more sensitive levels of glucose and insulin. And there's a lot of genetic factors as well. So we need to be looking at pregnancy as a time when woman is eating to grow another human, that's when you should be eating wonderfully, not like, oh, I need more calories and give me more Cheetos, right? Which is what a lot of people are encouraged to do because the doctors don't really know much about nutrition, right? So I think it's really important that women get this under control beforehand. So I highly recommend the postprandial and looking at insulin levels, looking at hemoglobin A1C, minimally and getting those things under control, preconception, right? So that you're more likely to have a really healthy pregnancy.
0: Mm -hmm. And yeah. It's hard. I want to go talk about problem solving, but I can't help but take a little path down genetic lane here. And I have some questions around genetics related to this. So maybe they'll all fit in under this, under this little side note here. Mm -hmm. So I think about this is always interesting to me because In hindsight, I definitely had these like low grade Blood sugar issues, right? I was like always packed a bunch of snacks or would be hangry between meals and all of those things failed my first glucose tolerance test with my first baby. Maybe I can't remember if the second one either way. I didn't, I didn't keep doing them. Um, I just started checking my blood sugar and then there was some shifts that happened in health, et cetera. And there was a massive difference, right? But I always used to say, I used to stop and think about it. It's always good to think about our history. You know, my mom did have gestational diabetes with both myself and my little yeah. sister child fifth and sixth out of out of those, oh, wow. which is interesting. So the, that to me was enough. Are there specific genes? And, and so I'm going to put that question there. And then I've got another question about just genetics and endocrinology presentation yeah. as well. So anything to say about that? Yes, genetics
1: plays a role. I would say in about 25% of the people genetics are such that you've got to be super, 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 more supers, careful right? That you're not going to get away with eating ice cream and Coke and these sorts of things because there's genetic factors. And yes, there are. I've got a beautiful 16 page chart with probably, you know, four to six to seven on each page uh, that describes these different genetic factors. Mm -hmm. Do I have them memorized? No, that's why I create charts. But, Mm -hmm. you know, IGF one is one and there's receptors and there's all kinds of factors. And when you have a bunch of these, a cluster of these, you're more likely to have insulin resistance, hypoglycemia, insulin glucose dysregulation.
0: Mm -hmm. So this brings me to another semi-genetic question. So I'll throw it here. This is really a listener question. That was, she said, the first question I always get asked from doctors is, does anyone else in your family have thyroid disease, type 1 diabetes, et cetera? And she said, I recently said no until my daughter was diagnosed with type one diabetes a couple of years ago. And I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's hypothyroidism in 2021. Does that make you think about anything in particular from a genetic standpoint? I mean, there's so much, you know, I like to think about like, you're kind of so much when you're a woman, you get the genetics from your grandmother, right? Because the eggs of the mother in her womb, right? So there's just so many things that are not really in your control, but it's in, you know, and like, maybe you're the beginning of these, but it's, what do you think? about this situation.
1: Yeah, so there's the genetic factors and what you said about the grandmother. There's also the epigenetics and mm-hmm. epigenetics we find are past generationally. It's not just like, oh, it's what you do during your life. Epigenetics is the modification in the, whether certain genes are being expressed or not, but that's controlled by your diet, your lifestyle and all the other factors. And if you're someone who has a bunch of stuff that you've epigenetically I don't want to cause cause because I don't want to use it as blame, but you've created because of exposure to glyphosates, exposure to mold, exposure to this, bad food choices, stress, et cetera, then that can be passed on not just to your children, but to their children. Mm -hmm. So those kind of things increase the likelihood of your offspring having problems with blood sugar balance, with insulin Mm -hmm. resistance, with diabetes. So having those questions is super important. Now, there's a bunch of factors that affect the thyroid expression. There's a few that CTLA in particular comes to my mind is a specific gene that if you have that, you're more likely to be a subject to having Hashimoto's and more likely to be sensitive to gluten as one of the underlying causes of Hashimoto's. And there's a whole bunch of other thyroid related. I have a seven page chart of thyroid related SNPs. And Those are important factors, but the interaction between the two is often just not even thought about. And there's a number of studies that show if you have out of balance thyroid, it's going to be really hard to get your glucose under control. If you have really hard, really out of balance glucose and insulin control, you're going to have a hard time getting your thyroid under control. And the other piece, which relates to all of the endocrine system, what we don't really think about is the receptors on the cells. So the receptors on and in the cells and the nucleus and the mitochondria, et cetera. So when we look at receptors, that's like, oh, oh, there's plenty of thyroid hormone in the blood. It's not getting into the cells, right? If it's not getting into the cells, it doesn't do any good to have it in the blood. Oh, your thyroid levels are perfectly normal. What about the intracellular, right? And that's really a functional assessment. Like I've got constipation, I'm losing my hair, I'm cold, et cetera, can't lose weight, et cetera. Those are symptoms. But what happens is insulin, excess insulin can cause receptor resistance for insulin, but it can also be related to receptor resistance for thyroid, for estrogen, for progesterone, for a number of other hormones. And people don't even think about that. I did a whole like full day workshop a few years back for health practitioners on resistance, hormone resistance. And one of the leading causes of hormone resistance, estrogen resistance, progesterone, in addition to supplementing and over over supplementing, which burns the receptors out and inflammation was insulin, excess levels of insulin. Mm. So it's not a good idea to go get your insulin tested. And the doctor says, oh, it's 15. It's fine. No warning sign. No, 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 no. That can create insulin resistance and also other hormone receptor resistance in addition to damage to the blood vessel linings and so much more.
0: Yeah. Well, you said something a little ways back that makes so much sense. Something that really annoyed me in the last like handful of years was those subclinical thyroid symptoms not showing up on blood work, right? But it's like, really, this is an issue. So it's circulating yeah. in the blood, but not getting into the cell. There's receptor sites yeah. and there's lots of cofactors that make that possible, right? B1, B2, lots of things, right? There's uh, a lot of
1: nutrients, selenium and all, but there's the there's a few mechanisms. I can just throw out a few of them, but there's a, sure. it's intricate. But we've got the thyroid, which makes the thyroid hormone and then it gets bound to a protein. And then bound to the protein, it circulates. And then when we're ready to activate it, the protein has to unbind. If we have too many of those proteins, guess what? There's not enough free thyroid hormones circulating in the blood and we can't get activated. Hmm. What kind of things can cause that? One of the things that a lot of girls are subject to when they're teenagers is birth control pills, right? Estrogen causes increase in that thyroid binding protein. Right. And then we can't free that. So that's why when we're testing, we can't just test TSH and say, oh, you're fine. Your TSH is good or TSH and T4. Oh, you're fine. No, you're not. Because we have to look at all those intricate mechanisms. hmm. So we have hydroglobulins, but then we also have the conversion from T4 to T3. What the thyroid makes is mostly T4, like probably 90% of what the thyroid makes is T4. That's not the active hormone. The active is T3. So we have to activate it into T3 from T4. And things get in the way of that, like specific nutrients. You mentioned a few, selenium, gut imbalance, Liver imbalance, all of these things can affect that conversion from T4 to T3. But the other thing that can affect it, we talked about earlier is stress. Mm -hmm. When the body is feeling like unsafe, Mm -hmm. it's like, no way. We're not going to upregulate your metabolism. So we have another hormone, which most doctors won't test reverse T3. Mm -hmm. And so the body will turn on the brakes and say, nope, nope, nope. And what well meaning, but poorly educated, maybe doctors will do oftentimes to say, oh, the T3 is low, let's supplement with T3. Mm -hmm. And that's overriding the body's intelligence to slow things down, to turn on the brakes, because it could be an infection somewhere, right? It could be some sort of foci of, of inflammation somewhere, any number of things that can affect the conversion from T4 to T3, and thus increase the reverse T3. And here's the thing that most doctors don't know. I mean, we're getting really geeky with the, the labs, but is that they'll look and go, oh, your T3 is in the range, your reverse T3 is in the range, so therefore you're fine. No, it's the ratio between the two, right? And we have to have a ratio of at least 20 to one for T3 to reverse T3. It's mm-hmm. a little tricky to calculate because some of the labs do different uh, ranges and measures, but pretty much about there. So you can't just take it in isolation. Oh, your reverse T3 is not very high. How is it in relationship to the free T3?
0: Yeah. I was going to ask if how you felt about the ranges that are published or more typical for reverse T3, because sometimes I think it should, it's a bigger issue, but it's just not flagging quite as high as it should. No, no because they're not looking at the ratio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I like that. You're right. That is tricky when the units for the right. are different. So that is only if the units measured are the same for T3 and reverse T3. If they're at all different, then that would not. Necessarily
1: then you just work. It's a factor of 10 or a hundred, but there's a really nice conversion. I think it stopped the thyroid madness website. You yeah. just put the numbers in, you pick what the ranges, what the measurement uh, units are, and then it calculates it for you. I don't cool. like to do that. math. So I just cool. <laughs> stick it in the formula. Yeah. All
0: right, cool. So we've talked about some reasons that blood work looks good, but people don't always feel good from a thyroid mm-hmm. perspective or symptom profile because of blinding globulins and then conversion of T4 to T3. Anything else?
1: Receptors, the receptors, that's the most often overlooked.
0: Piece. Which get burned, like, get burned by insulin. They
1: get burned by insulin. They get burned by thyroid supplementation, right? So when we over oh, your TSH is high, therefore we need to supplement T4, maybe making plenty of T4, you can't get it into the cells and, and it floods the cells and it can damage them. Inflammation, excess cytokines, which we're seeing a lot of that inflammation, Elevated homocysteine actually affects the thyroid receptors. Low vitamin A affects the thyroid receptors. So there's all these other factors that we have to look at. We have to look at comprehensively. How's the nutrient status? How's the inflammatory status? how stress? All of those things play in to whether you're going to have good proper thyroid function. And the, um, the sad part is that a lot of folks go to the doctor with a clearly defined set of symptoms that looks like thyroid. And they're told, oh, your thyroid's fine. Here, take some Prozac for your depression. Take some some stuff for your whatever, laxative for your constipation, et cetera, et cetera. Right, drink more coffee to keep you awake, that sort of thing, right? And if it looks like a thyroid problem and it smells like a thyroid problem and it tastes like a thyroid problem, it's a thyroid problem, but it's a cellular level thyroid problem. And they're not thinking about that. They didn't learn that in medical school. I don't blame them. You know, you didn't learn it. But when you start to see so many people who are not getting well on the conventional treatment or they get better for a time and then they plateau and then they start to go downhill. Personally, I'm a geek. So I like the science. So I dig in. Like what really is going on here? What are some of the other factors?
0: Yeah. Thanks for going through those because it's a really big topic. And I always think that it takes a bit of effort and some nuance. Like there's a yes. lot of possibilities to love on that thyroid. And because yes. stress is such a big piece of it, you're going to be loving on the thyroid for a while or for a long yes. time. Don't stop loving on it. Is it. No, thing. no, no, no.
1: And don't give up because you tried this supplement or that. You tried you know, XYZ Company's thyroid supplement and it didn't work. totally. totally. It didn't work because that didn't address your imbalances. Mm -hmm. What are your imbalances? And then we haven't even talked about Hashimoto's, right? About the the autoimmune, which most doctors are trained in medical school that even if there's antibodies, there's nothing you do about it, just give them T4. So why bother testing? Mm -hmm. Whereas when we look at autoimmune conditions, which are, by the way, reversible, at least, you know, I've seen them be reversed, Then we have a specific set of stressors that we have to look at on the body. How's the gut? Is there leaky gut? How's the microbiome? Are food sensitivities an issue? And with thyroid, most of the time, at least in my experience over the last 30 some years, is gluten is a big problem, Mm -hmm. right? And so we have to look at it. How's the stomach acid if the person's not making enough stomach acid, And they can't digest their proteins. They can't digest their minerals, right? There's so many factors that we have to play in. And if we identify that there's a thyroid autoimmune condition, we have to treat it as an autoimmune condition, right? Not a deficiency of T4. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Thank you for talking about that. And it brings us right back to insulin and helping improve those elevated insulin markers because insulin is a piece of damaging these receptors, endothelial lining, et cetera. So we talked about appropriate ranges of insulin. That's a easy, simple enough lab that can be drawn when it yep. is elevated, when it's above five, what are some of the action steps? And we did talk about it a little bit with like talking about things about blood sugar besides diet, but what are some of the possible action steps for elevated insulin?
1: So I put people on what I call it a metabolic reset and the metabolic reset is let's not give the body any reason. To elevate the insulin for 30 days. And it's amazing how quickly the body can turn things around in 30 days. So we look at the diet and we take out all the high glycemic foods, all the things that cause it to go up. But getting back to postprandial, your high glycemic foods may not be mine. Mm -hmm. So we have to look at that postprandial glucose and we teach people to map it. If they have a CGM, it's even easier. And we take out all the foods. I'm very strict about this unless they're already diabetic and then we adjust the ranges. But for the average person who's just trying to you know, get this under control before it becomes diabetes, I say anything that raises your blood sugar above 110, it's out. Not two hours, it's at 110, I'm saying at peak. Because what happens with uh, glucose and insulin is we eat a meal and we're at baseline. So here's where your your sugar is. And then what happens is it goes up after the meal, depending on what you eat. If you ate lettuce, it's going to go up a little bit. If you ate you know Cheerios, it's going to go up like this or you know Oreos or whatever. and then it comes back down. So the key things are how high does it go and how long does it take to come back down? And even if it's back down to eighty five at two hour mark, but it goes up to 180 in between, causing damage to your system. So we have people remove those factors, whether they are stressors, whether it's the sleep factor, the food, whatever it is, and we help them to restore sensitivity to those receptors, the insulin receptors via some herbs and some nutrients and other things like that.
0: I think the key takeaway is if receptors have been damaged, are they repairable?
1: I have found with insulin and I, you know, haven't worked with somebody who's been type two diabetic out of control with 500 blood sugar levels for decades. But in my experience, very quickly, they're repairable. Cool. Now, if you go back and start eating the Oreos again and drinking the Pepsi, you're going to throw yourself into that same situation. Same as if you break your leg and then you get it repaired and then you fall down the steps again, you're going to break it again. Yeah, doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your therapy. It's just that you're putting that same stressor. In yeah. The system. No,
0: love that analogy. I'm going to go ahead and borrow that one. Go for uh, it. Speaking of sleep and then a little bit more about hypoglycemia and then I'll wrap up. So sleep is awesome. It's so wonderful. And yet, The majority of the nation struggles with it. I want to just specifically talk about the people that are trying to do everything they possibly can to improve sleep, but they're still kind of struggling. Do you have any words of wisdom for them when they're really struggling? They've they've done lifestyle changes. They're working on gut health. They're doing other things. They're trying to work on stress slowly, but surely Depends
1: on what it is, right? It really does depend. And so I did a whole series and we're just wrapping that up now on my podcast of like six, seven, eight episodes in a row. So it goes back to the lifestyle factors. It goes back to the diet. It goes back to sleeping in a dark room. It goes back to looking at it for environmental factors. Are there EMFs in the room? So there's so many things that we could spend like three, four days talking about sleep. It's complicated. And a lot of people have done everything, but really they haven't done everything because they've taken every sleep aid on the market, whether it's pharmaceutical or nutritional, and that's really not everything. So we also have to look at trauma and stress and what's going on. Are they waking up in the middle of the night because they don't feel safe? Mm. You know, are their cortisol levels going up? So in that case, if you have sleep issues that haven't been responding, you need to work with a good functional medicine person. because they'll be able to help you and do some tests and figure out what's really going on.
0: Totally. Okay. So I want to talk about one other thing. We were talking about spacing between meals, four to six hours, which I totally agree with. And then there's a caveat, right? When people have hypoglycemia or or if their adrenals are, and this was you, right? So you had hypoglycemia. I don't know if that was slightly lifestyle driven or if there was some. So I see when people have had long-term stress, And they've damaged mitochondria, adrenal function, etc. And they're not producing real great DHEA. Sometimes they feel like they cannot go more than a couple hours. And there's solutions, but um, sometimes the temporary solution is you may have to eat (laughs) a little more frequently. Would you agree or disagree? Or you think is there any caveats to this? Just because you see a lot of those people.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you do, and we all do. But you've got to do it slow, low, and slow, right? And so it's looking at what are they eating when they're not fasting, right? Like they go and they eat this meal that's shooting the insulin up, comes down, it goes back to testing, testing insulin. Is it a hyperinsulinemia that's causing the hypoglycemia? Most of the time it is. So whether you're on this end of the spectrum or that, the hyperglycemia, diabetes, or the low end hypo, it's the same dysregulation syndrome. So you still have to look at all the possible factors and causes. But yeah, in the meantime, you know, we're just gradually, oh, so you eat every 15 minutes. Let's go to 20. Let's go to 25. Let's change the composition of those meals. Let's make sure you're getting enough protein and fat at those meals. And you're not just eating carbs. And a lot of people, they're just like loading up on carbs because they instantaneously make them feel better, but then you get the crash. So we really have to look at it on a deeper level too. Yeah. There's no there's no protocol for anything. It's really a framework of an investigation to figure out what the root causes and what the imbalances are.
0: Yeah, I love that so much. So we've covered, I think, a beautiful gamut of things that are so darn helpful for people, which are you can test at home. You can go buy a $30 to $50 glucometer and test fasting pre-meal and post or two hours post-meal. Those are kind of the, always the standards, not that those all three need to be done every day. Maybe you would recommend post-meal, maybe a little bit more early on, but those are the main oh. ones, unless you have any other exceptions to that, I would say, right?
1: Uh, yeah. And going back to that, like fasting glucose, I think the two-hour post is not all that useful. It's what goes on between the meal returns to baseline. How long does it take to return to baseline? How high does it go in between? Mm. What causes that? Is it stress levels? Is it exposures? Is it food? Is it some specific thing? So it's really for each person identifying what those causes are. And I think that, you know, two hour postprandial, yeah, it should be back down to normal, right? Mm. And maybe it's a little longer because the meal was higher in fat or protein. Maybe it's a little shorter because you had a bowl of fruit. But the point is that we need to find that for each individual person. Everybody has their own glycemic index, so to speak. So
0: it's finding that. Yeah, to clarify, what you're saying is actually check prior to the two hours post to see how much- Oh, absolutely.
1: They, okay. may need, they need to find their peak and the peak is usually 30 to 60 minutes. So mm-hmm. somewhere in there, I usually have them the first couple of days be testing every 15, 20 minutes so that they don't miss the peak because some people peak really- early and then crash and then at two hours they're like below baseline you know and if you're at three hours if you're below baseline or two hours even but most people it, it takes a little longer then that's a dysregulation that's usually excess insulin mm-hmm. and we need yeah insulin.
0: that's the beauty of a cgm which we didn't talk a ton about but it's essentially looks like a quarter you stick on your arm you maybe scan yep. your phone next to it it'll tell you what it is and there's no needle pricking so we exactly. talked about- We talked about checking with a glucometer or a CGM if we're fancier and those have become more accessible to the regular consumers now. They used to be more expensive. Mm -hmm. We talked about getting insulin checked and how the reference range should be between two and five, not 20. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Talked about things that affect blood sugar besides diet. Talked a little bit about genetics. We talked, you gave three very amazing points about why you can feel like you have thyroid symptoms, but it's not showing up in your blood work from binding to receptor sites to conversion. Gosh, there's so many good things here. And I really appreciate you going through all of this. I think endocrinology is just one of those areas that we could talk about for a long time. What do you want to leave people with today?
1: Oh boy, there's so many things I could leave people with. Take charge of your health. Don't trust the doctor. If you feel like you have a thyroid problem and you go to a doctor and they say, oh, no, you don't because your TSH is normal. Find a new doctor. Be empowered, learn this stuff so that you don't have the pulled over your eyes and you don't have a constantly degrading condition until like if it is a Hashimoto's or something that your thyroid is destroyed and can't be brought back. Mm-hmm. Like you have self-healing mechanisms within you. Let's empower
0: those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dr. Rita Marie, where can people find you online? I am
1: at com is my website. I am at DrRitaMarie on all the social media platforms, including YouTube. And if you're a health practitioner, go to method I-N-E-Method.com. And then we have all kinds of programs for training health and wellness practitioners to actually do this kind of care in their practices.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on today. It was a thank treat you. and I hope to have you again.
1: I would be happy to, thank you